Tonight's presentation is entitled, Widening the Circle of the Lens, American Indians and Media. And it's my pleasure to be discussing this topic with Jeff Smith, our guest speaker. And we chose this topic for, for several important reasons. Um, one, I'm the Denison Scholar of American Indian Studies. Two, media is essentially the art of storytelling. And storytelling is really important. Storytelling shapes the way that we view ourselves and the way that we view the world. And three, storytelling shapes the identity uh, of uh, self, others, and then our choices in life, our choices and chances in life. And so it's really important. One thing, though, that, um, that I noticed is because media is everywhere and in every part of our lives, but we're really vaguely aware of how it actually impacts us. And we receive very little in the way of training um, as far as how to um, consume media, how to analyze media, and that's one thing that I really, really appreciate about Jeff's work. Um, we also receive very little accurate information um, as far as contemporary views of American Indians. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's not that they're wholly inaccurate, but that those images are incomplete and we don't have um, a whole picture of, of life in Indian country. So I'm just going to uh, pose a question to you. How many of you are familiar with a guy named Bill Cosby? Right? Okay. And what did the Cosby show do for us? It's a great show. We love the Cosby family, right? It presented to us a picture, a lovable, humorous picture of the middle class African-American family. What about George Lopez? That is a funny guy. We love George Lopez, right? That presented us a picture of what? A family, right? A Latino family that was lovable and humorous. So I'm going to pose a question to you. Where is the American Indian equivalent? Where is the TV show about the lovable middle class American Indian family? And why isn't it there? Most of those images are historical, right? Some of them are, are, are kind of nice and mythical and spiritual. We like Pocahontas, right? Um, lovable Disney character. But where's the, where's the, um, the present day here and now image? So that's a question I'd like to leave you with. I'm going to um, read a quote from Dr. Beverly Singer's book called Wiping the War Thing Off the Lens. Um, and it's by Paula Gunn Allen. And um, she's Sue in Lebanese. And in her study of the American Indian oral tradition, she states that oral tradition is more than a record of people's culture. It's a creative source of their collective and individual lives. When that wellspring of identity is tampered with, the sense of self is also tampered with. The oral tradition is a living body. It's a continuous flux which enables us to accommodate itself into the real circumstances of a people's lives. And that's its strength. But it's also its weakness. For when a people finds itself living within a racist, classist, and sexist reality, that oral tradition will reflect those values and thus will shape the people's consciousness. And they will incorporate that 
that change, hardly noticing the shift. And I think that's even the place of us, is hardly noticing the shift. So, I am very pleased to introduce our, our guest speaker tonight. Jeff Smith has been the director of the Grand Rapids Institute for Information Democracy since 1998. The acronym is GRID. And GRID teaches media literacy, acts as a local media watchdog, publishes reports on local media, and conducts media workshops and training. And Jeff also does a lot of independent uh, journalism. Can I plug Media Mouse? MediaMouse.org is a great site for independent news. Jeff has co-edited a community newspaper, produced a local TV show, hosted a local radio program in Grand Rapids, and several documentary films on media and human rights issues. That's, this includes a series of films under the people's history of the LGBT community in Grand Rapids. Please join me in welcoming Jeff Smith. Extra. Extra. It's also long detergent. Why? Your 
You are pregnant, Patty, and Z. Zest. Zest, okay. All right. Pretty typical that folks who are younger tend to recognize snack food and candy. Those of us who are a little older recognize cleaning products, which probably says something about what we purchase and what we don't purchase. Okay, there's a part two to this exercise. This is a current uh, cabinet in the Obama administration. I apologize that it's not current in that the White House Chief of Staff has since changed. So, this is the previous one. But if you can name, starting with the upper left-hand corner, the person and what position they hold in the cabinet, that would be great. So, upper left-hand corner, who is that? Panetta, and he's the Secretary. defense secretary. Very good. Next to him, Clinton. She's the what is she? Secretary of State. Okay, middle top. Right, Eric Holder, Attorney General. Next to him, it's Tom Bilsack. He's the Secretary of Agriculture. The far right top is uh, William Daly, who was the White House Chief of Staff, he no longer is since he's been replaced. How about below him, bottom right? I'm sorry? Bottom right. Salazar. Salazar, yes, and he's the? Secretary of Interior, correct. Next to him? And he's the? Education Secretary, middle bottom? He's the? Nope, Panetta's the defense. He took Panetta's position, director of the CIA. Next to him, Jenna Napolitano. She's the Homeland Security. And then bottom left, Geithner. He's the Treasury Secretary. Okay, all right. Well, how comes we can identify products? a whole lot easier than we can identify people who kind of run the country. Why is that the same? Yes? Because they don't have media campaigns. Okay, so there's no marketing campaigns. Right. What other reasons why do you think we know one, not the other? We see more on a daily basis. We see one more than so frequency, absolutely. What else? What is different about these visually? More fun. These are more fun? The first step. These are more fun. Okay, right. I mean, they have, they have bright colors, interesting fonts. How long has Pez been Pez? A long time, right? I mean, how long has Arnie Duncan been Secretary of Education? Three years. So there's longevity with the other. So there's, there's just a whole lot of reasons why we tend to know one more than the other. But one of the reasons that's not, that there's one thing that's not the case is that it's not because this is the way media is supposed to be. In other words, this leads into this whole point that within the media literacy framework, one of the most important things to understand is that all media is constructed. Somebody puts it together, right? In fact, the media determines what to give us, when to give it to us, and how to give it to us. Now, it's not a good or bad thing necessarily, it just, it, it is, it's a reality. Okay, how many of you have ever been interviewed by the news media? Okay, so right here in the green. Was it broadcast or print? Was it broadcast or print? Interview? Both. Oh, okay, so let's say the TV one. How long did they talk to you on camera? Well, for a while, I was going to play a little bit. Okay, so they, they were able to run everything you had to say. 
At the end of the interview, did they say, which of your words would you like us to use? No. You don't get that option. They choose for you. They construct the story. Now, sometimes they might get what you had to say correct. Maybe they reflect what you had to say honestly. Sometimes they take it out of context. Sometimes it's the most ridiculous or least intelligent thing you might have to say, right? The least articulate thing, right? Um, so it's just the nature of how, how it functions, right? But that's not like a law. It's not like there was some Moses of the media world 100 years ago that says, okay, this is how we're going to do it. This is because of, there's three major factors. One is there's political factors, meaning we have a regulated system, right? So there's certain things you can and can't do. So you know if you can't say certain words and you can't see certain kinds of nudity on primetime regular TV, not cable. It's a whole different thing because you're paying for that service to come to your house, which is regular broadcast TV, because it would it would violate the FCC's obscenity and, uh, obscenity and indecency clause. You know, we know six years ago, halftime Super Bowl, what happened? Yep, so. Right? Right. What they said was a wardrobe malfunction. For a split second, we saw it on Janet Jackson's breasts, right? Well, that violated the uh, indecency clause. So CBS was fined $650,000, even though it was just like a split second, because you just can't do that. Okay? So another reason why we have the kind of system we have is because of economics. We have, for the most part, 99.5% of our media in this country is a for-profit system. Okay? And that means that there's going to be outcomes because of that. So for instance, if you go to your car and you have just Regular old radio, I don't mean like Sirius or something like that, but just regular radio. You have to pay, is there like a slot where you put a quarter in to listen to the local rock station or something like that? Okay, where do they get their money from? Advertisements. Okay, what percentage of their budget comes from advertising? What would you guess? Is it all of it? Yes, 100%. 100%. So that's the other factor. So those things sort of determine that kind of stuff. 
The other thing I wanted to sort of point out that I think is important as a framework is just this idea of like how much media do we consume? I mean, Dean mentioned this early on, right? And that we don't, we aren't really kind of given a framework on how to deal with the media we consume, except for when it comes to the written word. So how many of you have ever taught a child to read a book? What, can I ask you what techniques you used in teaching that child how to understand what it is you're doing? Visual aids, right? So word picture association. Sometimes you might sound stuff out, you know, help them understand what a noun is, what a verb is, all those kinds of things, right? In other you're teaching them to be literate, right? Because they're not going to learn if you just drop a book in their lap. It just doesn't work that way. They have to, somebody has to show them and help them understand those frameworks. But do we do that kind of education with any other media? Do we do it with TV? Do we do it with the internet? Do we do it with video games? with billboards, anything. Do we sit children down and say, okay, this is how you read that medium? And we don't. Now we might show them how to use like a mouse or a remote control or a, you know, something, you know, uh, uh, toggles or all kinds of things with whatever. We don't teach them how to understand the content, how to decipher that. So that's, I think that's what, and that's what we try to do. It's really important. And one of the things we look at uh, there's, there's a constant shift around the amount of media and how it's consumed. So this is the most recent I've seen. This is from the Kaiser Family Foundation. So you can just sort of see from 99 to 2009 the amount of time. So now the average American between 8 and 18 spends about four and a half hours a day watching TV. About two and a half hours a day listening to music. About an hour and a half day on computer an hour of 15 video games and then less for print, less for movies. But that's about total media exposure, about 10 hours and 45 minutes a day. Now that does not include, obviously, digital handheld media, right? Cell phone, texting, whatever people do with their Blackberries, whatever kind of handheld digital device you have, which would increase it significantly, right? Particularly amongst, you know, high school and college age populations. And what we look at is the cumulative effect of that amount of time. So if we just took the amount of TV time that one spends on, on average a day and add that up over one's lifetime, that means most of us by the time we die will spend about 16 years of our life watching TV. That's the cumulative amount of time we watch television. So, which for some people that's about a quarter or a fifth of their life is spent in front of a box with flashing lights and sounds. Now, if you just take the 30-second commercials that we see on TV and add those up over one's lifetime, that's about a year and a half of our life just spent watching commercials. And the point about that is, is not to say, like, oh, you shouldn't be spending your time doing something more constructive. The point is, is that there's a cumulative effect. In other words, the constant hegemonic images and messages that we hear and see it have an impact on us over a life period of time. Which is different than the simplest kind of association, right? So I would never argue that if one is going to play Call of Duty, right, and you just play for a few days or something like that, that somehow you're going to want to go out and mimic that behavior and just start shooting people and acting like you're in a war zone. Of course, there's not that simple cause and effect. However, if you play those kinds of games and consume that kind of media over a long period of time, it doesn't, again, mean that you're going to go out and do that kind of behavior, but it, it will impact how you see yourself in the world around you, in terms of how you navigate violence, how you, what do you think about the world, the role you think of police and military, all those kinds of things. Media violence is the most studied aspect of, of media.
media. So that's some of the conclusions that they draw. So what we're looking at for this, for the purposes of this, is the whole idea of the cumulative effect. What does it do, particularly to the non-native community, to see very narrow constructions of native people, whether it's in news media or entertainment media, over a period of time, over one's lifetime? How does that frame our own understanding of how we see native people? Okay? And so it's what I would refer to as normalizing a hegemonic view. That's what we see over and over again. I mean, Dean mentioned sort of this kind of frozen in time. Like when we think of native people, when we see images of native people, whether it's in advertising or whatever it might be, they're frozen in time, 100, 200 years ago. They have this look about them, right? That sometimes it's not even an accurate depiction of a particular native nation, but it's white folks' construction of a native person, which might have dress and regalia that's taken from a variety of different native traditions. But that's the kind of construct we have in our head. That's that hegemonic view that we have of native people, right? So the noble, which is the noble savage. Or this very sort of narrow cultural icon. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the, to the news portion of it. So I wanted to start off by looking at entertainment media, particularly looking at television. So there's two studies I'm just going to cite here, which are one that we did and one that's a national one. So we had actually college students work on the one from Grand Rapids, looking at all the children's educational program uh, in our market, because every broadcast station is required to run a minimum of three hours a week of children's educational program. We found in looking at those programs in May of 2003, for the month of May, that not once was an, and the children's program was there a Native American character. Not once, whether that was real, you know, like humans, or whether it was animated cartoons. Not once was there ever a Native character in those shows that was deemed as educational for children. The same thing is the case with the Children Now study, which was also a 2003-2004 study, and I think I have that one. I can pull up here. But, um, so the same conclusion was, was there. Uh, the representation of minorities as a whole was less than the population. But for Native Americans, it was, again, non-existent for that. Uh, this was a six-month study that they did in 2003-2004. So there was just no representation. This was on major programs that children would consume. Eight uh, percent were African American, six percent were Latino, and then between Arab American, Asian American, and they actually had Pacific, you know, Islander. Um, it was like less than a, a percentage, and, but Native American, North, North Native American, none, and then all the other ones was were Euro American, Caucasian representation. So, and that's pretty common. Yeah. So Dean again sort of asked the question to people. Why is it we don't have a Native family as a primetime TV show? Or in any program for that matter. 
if you go, if you watch Nickelodeon or you know Cartoon Network, whatever, you are not going to find as the as the main characters, you're not going to have Native people represented in any of that sort of program. That's television. Uh, television entertainment television. Then within video games. Um, anybody know what the very first video game that had a Native American character in it was? This is the character right here. This is 1984. It was just sort of a sidekick. The first, the first um, main sort of character was Turok.
over like a 25-year period. It's, it's this hyperlink here, this uh, radicalicious.com is the, is the website. And it's basically uh, a website that looks at media and, and race broadly. Um, but there are, there's a subsection for just native representation. Okay, so that's, that's video games. If we look at movies, we've done ourselves several kind of methodical studies over the years. Um, one in 2003, the top one there, where we looked at the top 50 films released on DVD that, that also played in major um, you know, theaters around the country. So 50 films. There were no lead Native American characters, and only one film had a Native American character in it. Both one native woman and one native man. That movie was called Snow Dogs from 2003. It's a Cuba Gooding Jr. film. It's sort of a comedy. Um, but again, the, the native woman in that film is highly sexualized. And the native man is seen as sort of the stoic type. He never talks, right? Which is again sort of again one of these hegemonic views of native people. They're just stoic. They, they just they're almost like you know, cigar store statues. They don't say anything. They just have a presence, right? Uh, in the more recent study in 2010 that we did, again, we looked at 50 top films, and there was only one. It was an animated film, and it was Ponyo, right? Did anybody see Ponyo by any chance? I mean, you know, there's various interpretations of it, but I personally didn't think it was a very honest, kind of substantive depiction of Native people within that film. Um, but that's the only one then. Uh, a couple just good books. So the one that that uh, Dee quoted from, you know, Beverly Singer's book, you know, wiping the war paint off the lens, is a, is a good sort of deconstruction. It also looks a lot at films produced by Native Americans, which I think is really critical. But the other one that looks at you know Hollywood's Indian portrayal of Native Americans in film, that mostly looks at kind of the traditional kind of cowboy Indian films, um, which is I think a really good historical analysis of. Again, decades of this very sort of, you know, kind of hegemonic genre of how indigenous people were sort of viewed, only as constantly at battle with cowboys, right? <clears throat> so that's of that, and then I just wanted to to look at because in today the only kind of really popular, well-known film amongst young people where there's any native representation is Twilight, right? Is Twilight? I mean, how many of you? You know, even if you don't want to admit it, how many of you have watched any of the Twilights? Okay. All right, thank you. All right, so, uh, in all of them, right? So we have, we have Jacob here, right? Before he uh, cut his hair. This is from the second one. This is from New Moon. He's coming out of sort of this garage area where he works on motorcycles and trucks and so forth. But, you know, but clearly, from a class perspective, um, he lives in a family that doesn't have much uh, material wealth. This is also sort of a typical representation, is that we always see these guys shirtless. Which is not unusual for a racial minority, particularly men. Since they have very little material wealth, what they do have is their bodies, right? And so they're seen as physical beings, right? You know, muscular, but that's one thing that they do have. But again, it tends to kind of fetishize this view of how we see racial minorities, in this case Native Americans, is that, you know, he seems a little it's clearly different than, than the other guys in the film, particularly different than the vampires. Um, 
again, some of the other guys, you know, in his tribe, right? Uh, same thing, no shirts on. And then there's Jake's father, who's in a wheelchair, um, who speaks, but not a whole lot, and we don't really know anything about him contextually. We don't know much about his history, you know, even how he ended up in a wheelchair, or any of those kind of things. He's just kind of a, a sort of a side character um, that, you know, shows up every now and then. Now, if you juxtapose them with the vampires, right, who are white, so here's Edward, right? Much different. Drives a, you know, sort of a well-known branded new car. His sister drives a pretty nice sports car. They live in a pretty nice home, right? And here's an interior view, right, of them sort of dressed up. So there's some very clear, I think, both class and racial distinctions in that the vampires are always very sort of calm and level-headed, and the, the wolves, or the indigenous folks, are have less control of their emotions and are easily, easily pissed off, right? So an example from the most recent film, from uh, Breaking Dawn, just a little scene. So the wedding is just finished, and Jacob shows up, surprises Bella, so it starts off very happy, but then see how it, how it changes or evolves here. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to appreciate your last night as you know. What's that my last name? I thought you. I didn't really want to spend my honeymoon night in the What's the point? It's not like you have a real honeymoon. It's going to be as real as anyone else's. That's a sick joke. You are joking. What, while you're still human? You can't be serious, Bella. Tell me you're not that stupid. I mean, it's really none of your business. No, you can't do this. Jake. Listen to me, Bella. Let me go! Jake. Calm down. Are you out of your mind? I don't care! Walk away from me! Enough, Jacob! Stay out of this cell. You're not going to start something that we'll have to finish. She'll die. It's not our concern anymore. Okay. 
So how do people sort of navigate that that scene in terms of how white vampires and native wolves are portrayed? How do you make sense of that? Or should I just ask first, are people part of Team Edward or Team Jacob? <laughs> it seemed like he wasn't like uh, in control of his emotions, whereas like uh, it just seemed like a wild man, like a savage. Yeah. And maybe it escalated pretty quickly, right? Anything else that you noticed? When Jacob's sort of emotions escalate to you know, serious anger, what else happens? Same like how the other people show up. Right, so other native folks show up, like, which might suggest what? I mean, how do you interpret that in this context? Okay. 
But within news media, it's a whole different, slightly different kind of dynamic. Uh, and of course, historically, because in the United States, since newspapers were sort of the historical medium, and I would highly suggest, it's sort of listed up there, the, the newspaper Indian, which is a, it's kind of the definitive work that covers from 1820 to 1890, looking at how Native folks were represented in U.S.-based newspapers uh, during that 70-year period. But just one example uh, from that text is that so before the Revolutionary War, the colonial press in the mid-18th century began to demonize Native people as Euro-Americans began to expand westward. And I mean by westward, I don't mean like west of Mississippi, I mean just starting to move just a little bit further from the East Coast, uh, encountering like the Iroquois Confederacy, or the Cherokee Nation, or other folks who historically were kind of a part of the Eastern Seaboard. So in South Carolina, once the war with the Cherokees began, an astounding 30% of all stories in the South Carolina Gazette, not 30% of the stories about Cherokees, just 30% of all stories in the newspaper depicted Native Americans as engaging in violence. So again, thinking about the cumulative effect of people reading that newspaper, how what was it, what would be an easy conclusion one would draw about how they were going to see Native people, in this case, particularly how they would see Cherokee people. See them as like great neighbors? Maybe you want to hang out with? Monsters. Yeah, monsters, a threat. Uh, how many people have ever in their lifetime seen the movie The Wizard of Oz? Okay. Anybody know who the creator of that story is? Not the, he didn't like produce the film, but the one who wrote the story that became a film, right? guy named Frank L. Baum. Before he wrote The Wizard of Oz, he was a newspaper editor. So here's a quote from Frank L. Baum when he was the editor of the Aberdeen Saturday Post. This is right after the Sand Creek Massacre. The proud spirit of the original owners of these vast prairies inherited through centuries of fierce and bloody wars of their possession lingered last in the bosom of Sitting Bull. With this fall, the nobility of the Redskins extinguished, and what few are left are a pack of whining curs who lick the hand that smites them. The whites, by law of conquest, by justice of civilization, are masters of the American continent, and the best safety of the frontier settlements will be secured by the total annihilation of the few remaining Indians. Why not annihilation? Their glory has fled, their spirit broken, their manhood effaced. Better that they die than live the miserable wretches that they are. And this is not in like an unusual editorial at the time. This is like kind of a standard editorial of the time in terms of how uh, white newspapers commented about Native people. And just another one the following year from Baum, the same thing. The pioneer has before declared that our only safety depends upon the total extermination of the Indians. Having wronged them for centuries, we had better, in order to protect our civilization, followed up by one more wrong and white these untamed, untamable creatures from the face of the earth. How would you classify that kind of rhetoric? If you were trying to kind of classify it or understand it within, say, maybe a legal framework, what would you, what, would, what might you call that? Genocide. Pardon me? It's like a call for genocide. Genocide, yes, very genocide, you know. They're not just calling, like, for, you know, to do away with a few. Like all of them, right? Okay. Um, I would say that, um, and
And then, but an interesting example from, uh, it's actually from this book here, News for All the People, Epic Story of Race in American Media, that in, in um, I bought the Cherokee newspaper. So in, in 1826, there was a Cherokee uh, tribal leader who had interacted quite a bit with Euro-Americans and decided that there would be a significant advantage for him to start a newspaper. So it, there's no consensus on when the very first native newspaper was produced. Newspaper in sort of a contemporary sense, not, there may have been other variations, you know, hundreds and hundred years ago, but in terms of like what we know as a newspaper, the first one is believed to be written by a guy named John Ross, who was a Cherokee tribal member. And he actually figured out a way to kind of both so that white people could also read it, like translating Cherokee language into it. He created his own sort of script so there'd be a way that you could like read. It was a bilingual, so it was a Cherokee script and it was in English so that you could read one right next to each other. Um, I think it's real important for a variety of reasons that we'll talk about later, but one of the first things he wrote about was because at this time in 1826, then-President uh, Andrew Jackson was pushing for the forced removal of the Cherokee Nation from the eastern coast, right? That then led to the Trail of Tears, right? So he was the only newspaper editor in that region to come out publicly oppose that. Shouldn't be surprising since he was native, but, but it's important, I think, we recognize that um, when, when native folks have their own media, medium, right, to tell their own stories through their own eyes, uh, we, get a, we get definitely a different perspective and a different, different message. Um, in terms of doing media analysis at the local level in Grand Rapids and West Michigan since 1998, um, and we've, we've done anywhere from one-month studies to one-year-long studies looking at uh, who's in news stories and what role they play. And it almost doesn't matter. The percentages don't, don't change much at all matter what year we did it or how long we do these studies for. So on average, most people who appear in news stories as a whole in West Michigan, uh, between 88 and 90 percent of them are Euro-Americans or white. Five or six percent are African-American, anywhere between 1.5 and 2 percent are Latino, and then all their racial minority groups, Native, Asian, Arab, are less than the remaining percentage. So we would go sometimes months and months and months and only see one native person ever appear in a news story. So there's that whole idea that they're just sort of non-existent almost. Again, thinking about the person, particularly Caucasian folks who watch the evening news, the local evening news, which still is for 60% of the population, that's their primary source of local news, is local TV according to the Columbia School Journalist. So if that's what their primary source is, and that they're only going to only on occasion see a native person in the news, at least in West Michigan. It's the only area I can speak about doing that kind of research. But then when they do see them, they're very sort of race-specific or cultural-specific kinds of things. So there's a powwow, right? And the news media will show up and get some B-roll, and maybe they'll interview one native person, and that's it. It's a nice... 60-second piece, and so that's all we need to know about that, right? Even though powwows, again, from place to place are different, 
They have their own traditions. They have their own meanings. These are very complex, you know, long-standing celebrations. But the news media has narrowed down to, you know, a minute. And that's, that's enough. The other one, obviously, particularly in the last 20 years, is around casinos. Casino battles, right? So in West Michigan, there's been several, but one particularly at, at Gun Lake. So we see Native people as folks who want to open up a casino or open up their own business in a sense. Um, and so it's not unusual for political commentators to refer to Natives in a pejorative way as casino Indians. Like somehow that's all they do or that's somehow some tribal designation. Casino Indians, like that's, that's it. But again, not surprising since that's one of the few kinds of representations in, in TV news that we get of Native people is is folks who are trying to get casinos. Okay? And then lastly, sometimes protests. And again, it's a race specific because indigenous people are protesting because of the either the encroachment or the potential loss of something that they call their own, whether that's an educational program, whether that's loss of I mean Grand Rapids years ago there was protests over over sort of theft of traditional burial mounds. Uh, all those kinds of things, which is important, but it still kind of frames Native people in this very narrow way that the only thing they have an opinion about, the only thing they care about, is sort of culturally specific to them. Which is why I added that next line. In terms, so what the news media does, and I don't think they do this intentionally. I don't think they're sitting around in the newsroom saying, "How can we make Native people either invisible, or how do we make them very narrow, see them as very narrow?" But the output sort of reflects that. So you rarely see Native people talking about policy, government policy, or about the economy, or the environment, or public education, or public health, or any of those kinds of things. Like somehow they don't have an opinion about that. They only talk about things that are Native, whatever that means. Right? Which usually means powwows and casinos. Like they don't have a life beyond that. The news media does that with other racial minorities as well. African Americans, Latinos, they do with all. But I think it's more stark with Native Americans because their, their actual presence in local news is very, very narrow, at least in our neck of the woods. I don't know in this market, in the Mount Pleasant TV market, uh, what the studies would look like here, but it would be interesting to see what the news output on a regular basis would look like, look like here. Now, one thing I wanted to say last thing about the news media in that regard is is sort of a legal perspective on this, the, the sort of the lack of representation, or sort of sort of a negative or very narrow constraints of this. Has anybody ever heard of a, a German newspaper in the 1930s called Julius Stryker? Anybody ever hear that name? Julius Stryker was a the editor of a German newspaper called Der Sturmer which basically, on a regular daily basis, made a point to kind of demonize Jewish people, both in his editorials as well as these caricatures they would put in the newspaper, making Jews out to be sort of kind of scary beings, in a sense. Now, Stryker only was the editor of that paper in the 1930s, so not at the peak of Nazi, when Nazis were in power in the late 30s, up until 45. But at the Nuremberg trials, in other words, when the International Tribunal came together to try war criminals for atrocities they had committed during World War II, both in Europe and then in the Pacific, 
Julius Stryker was found guilty of crimes against humanity, and he was a hung. He was executed. Now, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson said the reason why is because Stryker created, or yeah, Julius Stryker created a climate, sort of a socialized climate that allowed Nazis and Nazi collaborators to do away with Jews in a genocidal form. So you just can't do it unless you, you first of all kind of dehumanized the other. And that's why they killed him. So there are some Native American scholars who would argue, particularly around the issue of the limited representation of Native people, but particularly the Native representation by sports mascots. The Washington Redskins, you know, the Atlanta Braves, Cleveland Indians. That that, in a sense, is another way for the dominant culture to engage in hegemonic control and demonization of a minority population, which, following the precedents at Nuremberg, if that sort of contributes to the decline uh, of Native communities and Native culture, that those kinds of images and messages and people who perpetuate them would be committing crimes against humanity. That same argument. Which I think is a, it's an interesting one to think about. Because we think of genocide, we mentioned genocide, we think of genocide only as the extermination of people. But the Genocide Convention that was formed in 68 is a much broader definition. So it's not even the total annihilation of a population. Part of it is physically killing them, but it also could mean the force, force, forcibly removing people, right? And what native population in this country hasn't been forcibly removed from their original lands? It could also mean kind of uh, cult, forms of cultural genocide, which is what happened when the U.S. government forcibly took native children from their own communities and put them in boarding schools and forbade them to speak their own languages and all those kinds of things, right? But also sort of this, the media representation would fall into that category. So this would fit within, again, the International Tribunal on uh, what's identified as, you know, uh, the Genocide Convention. I just think it's important to sort of acknowledge that. But I wanted to gauge what you all thought about that notion. Just because we aren't now, like, as a matter of policy, we are no longer exterminating Native people. When I say we, I mean the U.S. government, the dominant, you know, Euro-American culture. We're not physically making a policy to say, okay, we're going to shoot them, or, you know, we're going to massacre. We're not doing that anymore. Is genocide less a reality now than it was 1,500 years ago in the United States? Yes? I wouldn't necessarily use the term genocide, but I definitely see it as a very large issue that is being addressed. Okay. Can you say a little bit more about that? Can you say a large, what's a large issue? Um, just the, the, like you said, the hegemonic portrayal, just the very narrow, the very narrow attributes that are given. I definitely see as being a group in power wanting to stay in power since there is absolutely no incentive to share. Okay. Anybody else want to add to that or take a different track? Yeah. I think it's like ethnocide, not genocide. It's like destruction of the culture, not the destruction of the people itself. Okay. I mean, it's an ongoing debate within you know, people who look at that sort of stuff. You know, some people would still argue that qualifies as a form of genocide, even though they're not killing them, if there are ways in which to kind of suppress or deny them their own, 
you know, autonomy, to, to, to determine, to find their own identity, and if we're doing it for them, but but certainly ethnocide could be another definition. Yeah. saying that because of the high levels of suicide within Native communities, because of you know their their experience living in this in this culture, um, this very sort of uh, narcissistic kind of nihilistic culture, if you will, that uh, if there's high rates of suicide or high rates of alcoholism, disproportionately high amongst Native population, that that is uh, that she's also that's a consequence as well. Uh, in a form of genocide by sort of self-annihilation because they feeling like how can I even function? I mean we had a we had Lee Sprague in Grand Rapids a few weeks ago and he called it you know it's a form of sort of you know um, post-colonial distress disorder right like constantly having to grapple with the consequences of being a colonized people even today right taking land and culture and all that kind of stuff I mean but he, you know, which is why the, the, the life expectancy for Native Americans in this country is the lowest of any other population. I mean, adding to that you know, poverty and other kinds of things, but partly it's because of just the psychological stress to live in a, in, in, a, in a world where your identity and your culture is not valued and not respected. With the TV studies, one example that they give particular children now is that particularly for minority children, not seeing themselves in media, cartoons, other kinds of things, on a regular basis, also affects their own self-esteem. If you don't see people who look like you, and then if you don't see people who look like you are doing like kind of positive or nurturing or empowering things, right? Because um, we certainly see minorities in media, but it's disproportionately engaged in criminal behavior or uh, you know, folks who just aren't, you know, motivated or doing it for themselves kind of thing. That tends to be kind of the dominant view of, of other minorities. Not so much Native American because it's so little there that it's almost non-existent. Other thoughts about the genocide question, genocide, ethnocide, how you navigate this? I think there are a lot of policies still today that are, um, it seems like it's trying to get rid of tribes still. You know, there's um, the quantum problem right now. There's a lot of um, resources that Native tribes do have that people do want still, and, and it's like they're trying to undermine uh, the tribe's power to try to give them resources. Absolutely. So I don't know if everybody can hear, but he's sort of saying that there are still ways in which the government in particular is engaged in trying to, uh, you know, sort of oppress Native folks, um, take their land, take their resources, whether it's issues around sort of blood quantum issue, like, you know, how much percentage of your blood is native to determine whether or not you're officially a native in the government's eyes, or the fact that the majority of uranium that we mine in this country for nuclear weapon and nuclear energy is on native land, which is why they've been increasingly moved off of those areas because they don't want native people to have control over that because they might decide to, first of all, keep it in the ground, or they, they might decide if you're going to mine it, then you're going to give us a whole lot of money for that. So we can do what we want with it, kind of thing, right? So if you engage in legal manipulation to kind of 
move them somewhere or get them to do something else, um, it's in the best interest of both both the government and private interest to kind of do this kind of things. Anyone else want to speak to that? Okay. Well, I just want to kind of end with um, some discussion about like how do we how do we how can we respond to this in some ways? Uh, the sort of dynamic that we have with native representation or lack thereof in media. And one, I, one thing I think, which is what we've been trying to do in our community for a long time, is just holding media accountable for how they report on that. And certainly part of that means we have to then monitor it. We have to methodically do a research project to sort of see those kinds of things. So I think I would really encourage, I don't know if there's groups in the area who would be interested in taking on, but Universities are likely places to have, whether it's in journalism classes or statistics classes or any kind of other sort of research, to sort of take that project on uh, and look at the local TV news for a six-month period or a year or whatever. Uh, it's so much easier now than when we first started because of the digital technology to kind of <laughs> capture and record and all that kind of stuff. We used to have to do it on the old VHS tapes and, and then, you know, watching it and so forth. But I think that would be, be really valuable to do that. Particularly in this community, um, but I think anywhere in the country, it would certainly serve a great purpose. The other thing, the other argument people make is that well, part of the problem is that those who work in media, news media, the agencies, they just don't understand us, us being native. They don't, they don't understand like native reality, our concerns, our issues, our history. So we have to go in and we have to teach them. So there's an argument for that. We go in and we offer media trainings for journalists, local journalists, so they understand. The issues that we're confronted with, what we think, what we know, um, to use us as a resource in doing future reporting. Which I think can certainly can be valuable, although it has its own problems. And it certainly always gets back to, particularly for minority populations, always having to kind of take those of us in the Euro-American community by the hand and like, you know, help us figure this stuff out as opposed to us coming to terms with that ourselves. And the last one under that only media camp accountable is this whole idea of radio and TV license renewal. So this year and next year are critical on this. So in the state of Michigan, all radio stations this year have to renew their license with the FCC because they don't own the airways that they broadcast on. They lease that spectrum to broadcast on from the, from the Federal Communications Commission, and they have to renew it every eight years. So this is the year in Michigan for all radio stations. So if you think that Native American perspectives, Native American music, Native American culture, Native American history is not being represented in radio in your market, you would have a legitimate grievance to say maybe that those licenses shouldn't be renewed until they start changing and reflecting Native interests and Native perspectives within that. Whether that's entertainment radio or news radio or talk radio, again. If people are interested in pursuing how you go about license renewal process, I could send you a whole lot more information. Same thing with TV stations next year, which is why it would be really interesting within the next nine months to do a study locally of TV representation. Because it's easier there because it's visual, right? Radio, it's hard to know. You can't tell, you can't always tell the ethnicity of somebody by listening to their voices, right? But with TV, it's a lot. It's a lot easier. It's not to say it's 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 100 foolproof, but, but usually they'll put a name or they'll put where they're from underneath it. So it's a lot easier to kind of figure out who it is that's in the news story. So all TV stations have to in 2013 do the same thing. 
So that's another way of kind of holding media accountable. But even beyond that, and this is a point that uh, Dee had brought, actually brought Beverly Singer to Grand Rapids last year uh, to present on her book and her work and everything. And I think, I think to me, the thing that sort of stuck in me the strongest, the most important point she made, was is that it's just really, 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 really critical. Instead of just trying to always get those of us who run and operate, you know, white media, even though we never call it that, but we should call it that, it's called the white media, right? Instead of trying to get getting us to like get our act together and do better at representation, that probably the most effective strategy is for more native people to make their own media. Whatever kind that might be. Whether that's films, whether that's news, print news, broadcast news, whether it's doing radio programming, whether it's doing web stuff, whatever it might be, it's probably more effective in the long run. Because then you have complete control over the content, how you can do it. All those kinds of things. That's the thing that really impressed me about what she had to say. And she's saying that within Canada, because there have been uh, uh, gains made in that arena, that there's actually federal money within Canada to help Native communities produce their own media. Now, it doesn't really exist in the United States the same. Um, in fact, if you look at, uh, and that final link there is a list of who owns broadcast media in the United States. So. Of all the media that exists, period, TV and radio world, only 6% are owned by racial minorities. And of that, like 0.002 something is owned by Native people. And virtually, like a handful of stations in the country are even owned by Native people. So, I think the strategy of making your own is really critical. And that could take lots of forms. Because these radio stations are renewing their license, what if Native communities, Native organizations got together and showed up at the local clear channel or whatever and said, hey, we want an hour slot every week. We want to do our own program. We'll run it. We'll produce it. We'll need your help. We just want an hour to do ourselves. Start there, right? I mean, it would be an interesting exercise, even if they didn't grant it, which they won't likely do it. but. <laughs> Uh, it would be an interesting exercise to get them like, well, what's your argument for not allowing us to have an hour slot on your radio station once a week? And, you know, why, why, why try to figure out our reality and just let us tell our own reality? I mean, you can do the same thing with television, but I, I think radio is better because I think it's just a, it's a, it's a media that's easier to produce. Um, just easier to produce, I think. Plus you can put it online easier, all those kinds of things. So that's that's sort of, sort of what I would suggest in that regard. Um, and if people are looking for resources, I mean, are people aware of native produced media in the country right now? Can you name any newspapers, any TV shows, any radio programming, any blogs, any kind of stuff? Does anybody know of any? I, mean, I know you did dig, so name one or two for us. Uh, Indians.com. Indians.com. Native News Network. I think there's an Radio. Yeah, Niji Radio, right? There's Indian, Indian Country. So there's a, there's a variety of news services, right? That tends to cover, like, nationally, disproportionately. Um, but those are mostly web-based. So that's another thing I think for us it's important if we familiarize ourselves with those news sites. Um, see like what it is that native people think and feel 
what issues they're confronted with um, if, if we want to be. And again, from my perspective, since I'm not speaking as a native person, since I'm speaking as someone who's trying to figure out how the lack of or the limited representation of native people affects those of us in the Euro-American cultures, um, I think it's really important on us to do stuff as well. Not to speak on their behalf, but to figure out ways to build solidarity and to get resources in their hands so they can tell their own stories. Why would we even think about this stuff? 